Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. And they really valued her. They felt that, you know, everybody was very uh, polite to her and made her feel welcome. And she really hated that assignment ending. She was trying to do whatever she could to get a permanent uh, position, but it just didn't materialize. So at the moment, she is currently uh, unemployed and kind of looking, but we just did file for unemployment last week. She's been, I guess technically this is uh, the third or fourth week, I think third week since she's been out. So. And this is the first time in her life, adult life, she's not had a job. So, But, uh, you know, I know things will work out, but it's been a really, really weird year. It just has. I mean, and I'm hoping 2021 will be better. We'll see, you know. It's got to be, you know. <laughs> Statistically, it's got to be, but it might not be, but I hope it is, you know, so... Well, welcome. It's good to have you, bud. And um, I know it's been a journey. Uh, and, you know, I think we've all been through, through a journey, but I hope, uh, I hope things cool off for everybody. So. Well, this chapter, History of Management, um, I like this chapter a lot because it really illustrates that management is a science and it evolves over time. Um, just like any technology, you see evolution occurring. Um, what was your first cell phone, for example? Does it well, slide phone? Slide phone? Touch screen. What was your first? Is it, you had a Nokia. What, what kind of Nokia was it? Had the snake game on. I had something similar. I think. I think it's just it didn't slide or anything, right? Yeah, I had one like that, just a little black and white screen, snake. You know, the little snake game. Yeah, I had that. I had that exact phone. Um, what was your first phone? Yeah, it popped up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love, I love that phone. I had something, I think, I, yeah, I had the one that popped up. It was, uh, I don't forget what it was called. Do you remember what, what your first cell phone was, Nancy? A flip phone of some type? Yeah, I never got a pager. I kind of wanted one, but they were not, they were not necessary by the time I could really use one, you know. So, I mean, they were kind of, I mean, the only people that had pagers when I was in high school were doctors at that time, you know. So, um, do you remember your first cell phone, Andrew? Yeah, I, it was a flip phone. It was a flip phone, okay. How about you? Do you remember? You said you said it was, you yeah, were still. Like yeah. Okay. I think my first cell phone was a, it was a Sprint bag phone. It looked like a, <laughs> the size of a football. And it plugged into the cigarette lighter in my, my car. And when you picked it up, it had a cord on it and the cord connected to the base. So you're driving down the road talking on a corded phone, yeah. And the calls were very expensive. They were 50 cent or a dollar a minute. It was, it was a little pricey, yeah, really high. And uh, I remember that was, this was 1995, six range. Um, my second phone, I think was um, a slider some type of slider phone that slid up and it was not horizontal, it was a vertical slider. I had a, I had a um, Blackberry at one point that was called a Blackjack that had the full keyboard on it. Yeah, um, the 
first cool phone that I remember getting though that I was really excited about was the Razor. You, you remember the Razor? Yeah, love a Razor. Those those phones are still cool. Yeah. Well, I saw my my dad still has an old Razor, the original model, and it's still a cool feeling and looking phone. It's very modern looking. Um, but after all those, I think the next phone I got after the Razor was the original iPhone one. And so the reason I tell you this story and the reason it ties into this is because just in my life, lifetime in the past 25 years or so, you see an evolution of technology that happens very quickly. You went from the bag phone to this phone right here, which is this phone in my hands is probably over a thousand times more powerful than the first computer I had in my house. The first computer I had that I owned was an IBM PS2. It had 256K RAM. And just to put, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's like nuts small to think about the kind of RAM we have in processing power today. Like um, some phones have like eight gigs of RAM. We're talking not megabytes, but gigabytes. And this is, this original computer had 256K RAM. Very, very old school, uh, very basic. And we see these evolu evolutions of technologies over time. Same thing is true with management theory. We have evolved over time to refine our process. And the way that management is done today is an illustration of the evolution of management science over time. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about that. Um, so we're gonna describe management, the ancient world. We're gonna talk about the Italian Renaissance and the progression of management theory. The Industrial Revolution, we're going to talk about Frederick Winslow Taylor's influence on management theory. Um, we're going to talk about uh, bureaucratic and administrative management and scientific ma uh, management. We'll talk about Elton Mayo's influence on management theory and um, contingency and systems management, uh, talking about that a little bit as well. So just to kind of jump into it, we'll talk about some early contributors to management so you can kind of see how we got to here. Um, the Sumerians, this idea of writing and trays, just having a written system, just whenever we started keeping records and writing things down, that was huge for not only management purposes, but for all other disciplines, history, uh, any type of science. You know, because you think about it, if you're, if you're a scientist, if you couldn't leave your work behind for somebody to follow in your footsteps, we'd still be living in the dark ages, you know. People that go to medical school today are studying things that have been building up over centuries, and they know, they know what not to do based on things that haven't worked in the past, uh, you know, old practices. Um, so writing the Sumerians, ex extremely, extremely important when we started getting a written system in place. And then we get to Hammurabi. Has anybody ever heard of Hammurabi's codes? We'll talk about it a little bit more in a second, good. So, commands and controls. If you do this, there will be this consequence. Letting people know, you know, there's, there's uh, outcomes that you can expect for these types of actions. And then we get to Nebuchadnezzar. This is why you guys get a paycheck today if you work. Nebuchadnezzar had an idea that if we incentivize work, people will give us more effort. If we just tell people to do something, there's no type of reward system in place. They're not as likely to, to give good performance, but... If we create some type of incentive, people will do better. The ancient Egyptians, even um, more refined incentives, they got uh, into division of labor, coordination, and span of control. 
Um, and this is really interesting. Think about trying to build the pyramids without any type of division of labor. You know, but the Egyptians said, no, we need some people to make bricks. We need some people to um, bring us raw materials. We need some people to coordinate moving these heavy objects. And so um, this idea of division of labor, extremely important. Sun Tzu, you might have heard of a book called Art of War. This is, Art of War was written as a commentary for how to practice warfare, but it's used in business school. Why do you think Art of War might be used in business school? Exactly. There's, there's a lot of competition in the marketplace that can be kind of warlike sometimes. Um, war is a ruthless activity where, and you, business people get bad, bad reputations for being ruthless, meaning that they're doing things that may not always be nice, but that may be uh, necessary in their eyes in order to advance uh, their profit motive. And so... Uh, Sun Tzu talked about division of labor, communication, and coordination. He also talked about this idea of using your enemy's strengths and weaknesses against them. And so if you know an enemy's strength, they're, they're going to rely on that strength. How can you capitalize on that knowledge? You know? So if they're going to focus on what they're strong at, you know what their play is going to be, right? In the NFL, for example, I don't know if we're going to have an NFL season or not, but and I'm not a big sports person, but this is directly related. So what's Tom Brady good at? Tom Brady's the quarterback for the Patriots. What's he good at? What's his, what's his specialty? Being Tom Brady. He's the quarterback. He's the one that throws the ball. Yeah. So that's his specialty. He, he is like one of the best quarterbacks of all time. You know? And I'm not, like I said, I'm not a big sports person. I'm not a big Tom Brady fan per se. I recognize that the guys won like five or six Super Bowls and there's something, you know, sparkly about, you know, what he does. Magical. But if I am a team that's going against his team, I know that that's their offensive weapon. You know, that's what they're going to do is really rely on a passing game. And so I've got to be aware of that, but also know that they, they might try to anticipate me doing that and also run the ball more. So from an art of war standpoint, I've got to look at both angles and try to figure out each time what they're going to try to do. And that's what teams do. They try to figure out, okay, depending on what position they're on on the battlefield, so to speak, what type of player they're going to run and how can I neutralize that. The Han uh, Dynasty, development of bureaucracy. What is a bureaucracy? A go ahead. Well, I need you to say something because I'm gonna drink, drink some water. Uh, like a, I don't know. I think of like the insurance bureaus, I guess, like the pieces. Yeah. So bureaucracy is basically a a system of control, and these controls are in place uh, in order to try to make better decisions. So instead of giving one authoritarian absolute power or one dictator or one ruler absolute power, we set up a bureaucracy in order to uh, make sure that the right decisions are being made. There's, there's appropriate uh, stops in place in order to make sure controls. As an example, with a company, if you say, okay, manager, go do what you do, do your thing, and uh, we're just going to let you run it, 
Well, with no bureaucracy in place, that manager, as a human being, can make some bad decisions, can, can uh, you know, make incorrect usage of resources, uh, fire the wrong people, hire, I mean, yeah, hire the wrong people, fire the wrong people, um, have the wrong uh, game plan. Give you an example. I watched a documentary a week or two ago. I might have told you about it, about Netflix and Blockbuster on Amazon Prime. Really good. But as soon as the new CEO got into Blockbuster, he started making all these decisions that were really detrimental to the company. I mean, they were on. They had a plan in place to challenge Netflix, and they pretty much abandoned it and went with a new strategy. And it would just sometimes that's another thing that happens. Leaders get into a role. And they think, oh, I'm, I'm a leader now. I'm here. I need to do something different to, to show that I'm making change, to show that I'm doing something different. You know, the grass is not always greener. You need to really evaluate what's currently happening, why it's happening this way, and where does change need to occur, not just change for change's sake. But, yeah, if there had been appropriate bureaucracy in place, um, you know, this, those decisions might not have been made. So... And then the ancient, ancient Greeks, Greeks also talked about divisional labor. So a couple different, uh, you'll see a couple different um, either contributors or civilizations that had this idea of divisional labor. And that's really important. Uh, everybody doing their part to you know, have a, a better functioning organization or machine. As an example here, like I teach, that's my function. I have a chair who supervises and making, making sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. There's a dean that looks at over the chairs. There's vice presidents that look over all the deans and make sure that everything's in compliance. And so that is basically a modern day division of labor and it's all over. If you go to a McDonald's, you've got people taking orders, you've got people cooking one side, you've got somebody operating the fryer, you've got somebody operating the, uh, the sandwich side. You know, there's all different people doing all different types of roles. The Romans came up with this idea of standardization. What do you think that means, standardization? Um, like checks and balances, right? Checks and balances, like, um, like, 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 okay, I have kids, right? So I want the kitchen clean this way. Right. And once physically show them that way, a few times, and, and like when he's physically doing it, well, at least that's how I'm going to get it. I show right. them, this, watch mommy do it. And then next time I may say, okay, do along with me. Sure. And then the third time, they do it with me watching them to make sure that they have a clear understanding of what the standard is. So now if I go in the kitchen and it's not clean correctly, I know you know right. the standard. So you got it. So standardization is following a model or way of doing things. And um, an example of this is uh, before the Romans started like minting coins, coin usage was basically just a... Uh, rough estimate of a certain weight of silver, gold, or copper, or other metal. And so these rough coins, they really weren't standardized. It was just an approximation. You know, they were roughly the size and shape. People would associate a certain value to that size, shape of coin. Well, when the Romans started standardized making coins, they made coins that would conform to a certain size, shape, standard, so that when you got a coin from that was made by the Roman Empire, you would know, hey, this weighs exactly this much. It's got exactly this much gold, silver, copper, whatever. And you could trust it. There was a standardized process behind it. And standardization leads to uh, basically uniformity, trust. Um, and if you are 
doing a task that's standardized, you can go and understand what your role is, what your function is, and how to get through it. So, yeah, standardization, important part of management history. And then the Italians had this idea of accounting the first corporations and multinational corporations. And then John Florio is the contributor that translated management uh, to English language. So started introducing these management concepts uh, to the English-speaking world. So lot, uh, lots that's in there. And this um, is in the book, so take a look if you haven't seen that, this, uh, this uh, I guess, grid that we just looked at. So Hammurabi's Code, I want to talk about that a little bit more. This slate that you're seeing is actually a uh, depiction of what Hammurabi's Code looked like. That is an actual uh, uh, preserved piece of it. Um, it's a well-preserved ancient law code cr created between 1810 B.C., so we're talking something that's almost 4,000 years old, and 1750 B.C. in ancient Babylon. Uh, ancient Babylon. Uh, it's a listing of 282 laws that regulated conduct on a wide variety of behaviors, including business dealings, personal behavior, interpersonal relations, and punishments. Law 104 was one of the first instances of accounting and the need for uh, formal rules for owners and managers. Um, so Hammurabi had this idea of uh, equity, basically an eye for an eye. You know, like if you wrong somebody, they, they, are, they are owed some type of uh, reciprocity or justice equal to that wrong. Um, and so this kind of was a foundation for civilized society, how we should interact with each other and uh, the way that we should conduct ourselves between individuals with regards to personal and uh, business dealings. And so uh, really, really foundationally important. It's amazing to think 4,000 years ago people were kind of getting, getting their act together, so to speak. So... Jumping, we've talked about the ancient world, and let's talk about something a little closer to now. Um, the Industrial Revolution created the conditions necessary for the development of modern management theory. In his masterpiece, The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith proposed the idea of specialization and coordination within corporations as a source of economic growth. Specialization and division labor were Smith's major contribution to management thought. Um, so what is a specialization? What does that mean? If you become a specialist. You have specific training in your area of work. So before we got into specialization within this, this industrial revolution, um, people were generalists, meaning that, hey, I just need a laborer. I need somebody to come in here and do some work, whether you be good at that work or not. You know, I mean, uh, and if you, if you don't know how to do it or you're not good at it, you'll train, but you won't be as effective as you might be if you were an apprentice and you had specialized in this field. Um, as an example, do we hire people nowadays to just come in and start welding something? You know, if, you, if, you're, a, if you're in that industry of construction or you need, need something, yeah, you don't just hire just anybody off the street to come in and, hey, Ryan, come weld. Oh, I need a job, I can weld, I'll go do it. No, that would be a disaster, right? I mean, you have to have specialty training to know how to operate the machinery, number one, but also how to do it efficiently and, and how to do it correctly. There's a lot of practice that goes into learning how to do welding well. 
And it's like that for several things. My the, the dean's daughter is doing dental hygiene right now. That's a specialty. You know, they just don't let anybody go in and start, you know, cleaning people's teeth and, and working on them, you know. That would be a disaster. And so this idea of specialization is important. We we want to have experts in our communities, the people that know what they're doing, uh, and can contribute in a significant way. You know, uh, back in the day, we'll go back, you know, maybe 100, 150, 200 years, you know, the barber in town was also the dentist, like the makeshift surgeon, you know, uh, he, he had many hats, you know, but do you th- the barber's just thinking, you know, I signed up to cut hair, you know, what happened here, you know, so, but I think the reason why he became like a makeshift uh, dentist is because he had the chair, right, that was appropriate to use for procedures like that, if they had to pull a tooth or something like that, so that's what gave him He's got a chair, so now he's the expert, right? So, yeah, what do you do? You think it's good to specialize in a field, or do you think it's good to be more of a generalist, where you can know how to do a little bit of everything? What do you guys think? I think both. Both? Right. And but then something else may happen and you can fall back on your trade. Like for instance, if you, like if people who got laid off from their corporate job because they downsized from the coronavirus. Right. But also knew how to be a mechanic and still make money now. Sure. You know, it's interesting you say that and it's timely that you say that because my oldest daughter, she turns twelve soon and before you know it she'll be eighteen, right? I mean time flies. I mean six years is nothing. And so uh, I told her, she likes to do hair and makeup. That's kind of a fun thing to mess with. I told her I have no problem with her, to send her to school, like at a community college for cosmetology, do that for a year or two, and then go right back in and do another major like dental hygiene or radiography or something, and graduate with two applied associate's degrees. And that way, she'll have two skills, and she could go get her primary job, hopefully, but if not, she's got a fallback skill. Um, the, or she could use both at the same time and make some side money cutting hair and makeup, you know. So, so I, I, I support that if that's something she wants to do. So, um, the division of labor meant that workers specialized in performing one task that was part of a larger series of tasks, at the end of which a product would be produced. The idea of specialization of labor had several important outcomes. Firstly, specialization drastically reduced the cost of goods. Secondly, it drastically reduced the need for training. Instead of learning every aspect of a task, workers needed to learn one portion of it. And then thirdly, or lastly, the, the need to coordinate all these different tasks requires greater emphasis on management. So once again, we see the need for specialization. If everybody can do their one part really well, it'll speed up the process. Because instead of having somebody that has... 50% skill level and all these different metrics, we have one person that's an expert in every aspect of the creation process. And at the end of that, we produce whatever our outcome is, product or service, but you do need management to coordinate that, to make sure that the right people are in the right places doing the right things. And so I can't emphasize enough the value that management can bring to an organization. So the success of the scientific management uh, concept lifted workers into the middle class. This crucial development has been attributed to one person in particular, Frederick Winslow Taylor. 
So Frederick Taylor, he was born in 1856, died in 1915, is known as the father of scientific management. So this is, uh, this is the guy we look up to. So uh, another one of Taylor's significant contributions to the practice and profession of management was the concept of first-class work. So meaning that we want to have skilled artisans, regardless of what uh, field that they work in, we want them to do outstanding work because it makes everything better. The customer is better uh, satisfied. We produce more valuable goods and services when we have first-class work. So it just makes, uh, makes everything better. When Taylor developed the notion of first-class work, he did so with the idea that workers should do as much work as they are physically and mentally capable of doing, so focused on outcomes. Those who were not physically or mentally capable of keeping up with production and job demands were sent to different areas uh, in the plant where they could work most effectively. Um, and so most organizations that produce a good or service are focused on outcomes. So a lot of you know by now, I worked at Walmart for five years, and uh, toward the end of my, I guess, stint at Walmart, they started doing this thing. Um, I don't even know what you call it now. I forgot the exact term for it, but it was basically um, stock tracking, meaning that uh, once you uh, logged in for the nights, if you were the overnight stock, man stock manager, making sure everything was put out, you would get a, what's called a Telzon. Do you call it that at Target? It's a, it's a scanner that has a screen on it. What do you oh, call it? Device? Yeah, device. What do you call yeah, this? A device. A device, okay. <laughs> a device. Manager call it a zebra. A zebra, okay. We well, used to call them Telzon. So. Well, you would get this device that had a little screen on it, and it would tell you that everybody that was scheduled for a shift that night. And what you did was, in the nightly meeting, you would assign or have already assigned every individual a department in the system. And the system would know how many cases had come in the door off the truck. Mm -hmm. And so they would say, okay, this associate, Bar you know, Barbara, has 248 cases of pets that she has to get done. And you have to track you know, how long it takes Barbara to, to crack those cases and put them on the shelf. And <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah it, was, it was really like, well, I didn't stay long enough to really see how this thing played out. But my, my thinking is the, the company could just reinforce or have more ammunition to get rid of people they didn't want to keep. Um, and so they could, at the, at the end of a three, six or nine month, 12 month period, they could say, okay, Barbara, here's your numbers. You know, we see that you've been assigned, you know, X number of cases and generally you, you do like a, you know, 73%, you know, of what we want you to accomplish. And they, the times on these things were outrageous. Like, uh, just as an example, for like 200 cases, they want to be done in like three hours and 47 minutes or something. I mean, well, Trucks yeah. Were like 24, like 22, 2400 pieces for right. the whole entire store. Like us over in soft lines in the clothing department, if we have four Michigan carts that are packed full of clothes, we have three Z racks that are completely full just for our department. Right. We're expected to finish those within two and a half hours. And yeah. that's making sure that everything that you put out on the floor is sized, everything is remerchandised. Everything is backstopped. Numbers are changed because we have cash. You got to move the old, uh, move the old product somewhere else. Yeah, and if yeah. you're working over in grocery, you know you have to make sure everything, 
you know, first ins, first outs right. kind of things. Everything is turned the right way. If it's backstop, make sure that your on the floor count yeah. is correct. Make sure that there's not a second or third location for it. So that's great. Yeah. So just we were talking about coronavirus earlier. God bless the retail workers, right? The essential retail workers, because we see how dependent we are on retail workers. Uh, and so I try to verbally thank people in the store when I'm walking, you know, around them and walking by them, because I know that they've had to deal with a lot through this uh, pandemic. So, but yeah, I get it. And the demands are. I think they set the bar high because they, they, they know that people work at a around 70th percentile. Yeah, I, I might have drawn this for you before. Did I draw that bell curve and show you kind of how that works? I think so. Maybe. Okay. So you've seen a bell curve before. And I'm going to say A, B, C, D, F. So generally speaking, most students fall into the mid portion here usually B to D, B, C, D range. Um, generally speaking, a few students are outliers. They do, they do everything they're supposed to do, do well. They, they shoot for the always. And then a few don't do well and they fail. This is what you call a bell curve distribution. And there is a central tendency in a lot of things. Um, yeah, just looking at big chunks of data that are, that's valid, you'll find a central tendency, meaning that people kind of aim towards the, mid, the middle. Um, and so that being true, I think with these things like task management, and which is what we talked about in the next paragraph, um, they set the bar high because they know there's this central tendency. You know, if I tell you that you've got this to unpack 500 cases, you know, you're going to look at that. And that might, there's also this middle thing that happens with motivation, and I'll mention that in a second. But they know that you might regress to this mid portion, and this is acceptable. But if you start off here, this range would be unacceptable. So, but you have to be careful what expectations are too, because if you give somebody an unreasonable expectation, they become demoralized by that. They say, well, I know I can't accomplish that, so why try? It's ridiculous for them to ask, so I'm just not even gonna try that. Um, Taylor also developed a task management system that allowed workers to occur more, um, to work, to occur more efficiently, I'm sorry, and allow for breaking up a supervisor's work so that he or she could function within a discrete area of activity. That's called span of control. So store managers generally have the entire store of, of people they have to take care of, but assistant and department managers really focus in on a niche or a particular area. And that span of control allows for a, a focus of what is gonna happen in your particular area. So let's talk about scientific management um, very briefly. So does everybody remember kind of the scientific method uh, from like middle school, yeah. so form a hypothesis, right? State the problem, form a hypothesis, uh, and then going through this process of testing those hypotheses, arriving at a conclusion, and then state your results. That's kind of a nutshell of the scientific management, uh, scientific method. Scientific management is very similar. It follows the same vein. First, they develop a science for each element of man's work. Man, generally speaking, men and women, um, which replaces the old rule of thumb method. So each thing that's done in the production process, you want to be able to quantitatively express that. So how many minutes does it take to complete this task? What does excellence look like? Um, does each piece that's produced have to, to conform to a certain metric? You know, I get, a, I get a new pair of glasses almost every year 
And if you break this thing down, there's a lot of little things going on with it. The rubber, the metal exoskeleton inside of it, these little plastic nibs, the uh, screws. You know, there's a couple different things that go into this. But I know there's some things that are like tiny imperfections. So they've determined what the tolerance level for that is uh, in order to be able to make sure it's passable. Second, they scientifically select and then train each, train, teach, and develop each uh, workman, whereas in the past, he or she choose or chose his or her own work and trained uh, themselves as best as they could. So with this idea of when you get hired now, you get trained, correct? What's the longest you've ever gone through like a training program? Basic training? How long was that? Nine weeks. Nine weeks? Yeah, that's a long training program, right? Yeah. Oh, how did you get? Sucks. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, I imagine. That wasn't that bad. Right. The first weeks is like pretty bad. Right. And then after that, it's just like, uh, you can get mind control like that. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. Well, the idea behind that is uh, indoctrinating you into their system. You know, they want you to eat, live, breathe the way they do. And that's, 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 they've become very good at their methodology to do that. So they've refined it over, you know, you know, hundreds of years at this point. So third, they heartily cooperate with the men, the, the men and women, uh, so as to ensure all the work being done in accordance with the principles of the science, which it has been developed. So if you can quantitatively numerically measure things, you're able to offer feedback. Because qualitative, meaning not numerically expressed, I have a subjective opinion uh, of qualitative work. And so um, I might have the opinion that this work is qualitatively good. Another person might qualitatively say it's not that good. But if we can get it down to a number, it took Bobby 8.7 seconds to produce, to produce one part over the course of an hour. You know, So we know 8.7 seconds is that number. It might, we might be asking them to do it every five seconds. But the fact that we can qualitatively or quantitatively identify that, then we can measure it and assess if it's good or not. This last piece, fourth, there is an almost equal division of the work and the responsibility between the management and the work, workmen. The management takes over all the work for which they are better fitted uh, than the workmen, while in the past, almost all the work and the greater part of the responsibility were thrown upon the men and women. So now management is expected to get in there and help where they're needed to fill the gaps. In the past, the manager just was basically the supervisor. I'm looking over, I'm watching. That, you, there's very much a participative management model that's happening today. Uh, in retail, you'll see managers running registers. At, at fast food, you'll see managers helping to cook or helping to uh, deal with customer service. So it's very normal for managers to step in nowadays. Okay, this last slide, and we're, we're getting close to wrapping up, is um, uh, at the same time that, him, uh, that uh, Frederick Taylor was going about, this other guy, Henry Fayle, who was uh, born in 1841, died in 1925, and Max Weber, who was born in 1864, died in 1920, wrote complementary contributions to Taylor's Four Principles of Scientific Management Framework. Whereas Taylor focused on frontline managers, those who handle workers, Fayle focused on top managers who set strategy, and, and Weber focused on middle managers who implemented strategy. Although Taylor, Fayle, and Weber viewed management from different perspectives, each stressed the need for logical, rational systems 
to coordinate and control various types of enterprises. So the bottom line of this is that we get to a framework where we approach management from a logical, rational standpoint, where we identify um, inconsistencies, where we identify, uh, in per, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I guess imperfections in the systems or uh, we, we, we flaws. Yeah, that's, that's not the word I'm looking for for some reason, yeah. But we look for inefficiencies. That's the word I was looking for. Trying to identify inefficiencies in the system and minimize those and try to figure out ways that we can maximize productivity and output. Uh, I may have mentioned this class. I'll mention it again. A great thing that you can do as a manager when you step into a new role is figure out ways to reduce overhead costs. The easy way is payroll. You know, that's trim payroll across the board. Um, but that's one, that's one way to reduce costs. But if you're doing that while sim simultaneously increasing sales or revenue, whoever owns the business is going to love you because those two metrics will more than likely lead to more profitability. If you're trimming expenses and increasing sales, depending on where that company is at and their expenses and things, it will lead to more profitability. So, all right, questions, comments, ideas on the history of management. I know that was a quick run through, okay? Um, anybody got anything? All right, folks, I appreciate you. I will see you next Monday. If you need anything at all in the meantime, please drop me an email. I'm here to support you. Thank you so much for spending some time with me on the podcast. I hope you got something out of it and learned something that you can use in the world and share with others. If you did like it, please indicate so by liking, sharing, or going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Until next time, I wish you well.